What prevents us? And one of the words that came through to me was stronghold. And so we'll take a look at that today. Are there strongholds that have grabbed a hold of the church, the body of Christ, of New Covenant? Are there strongholds that have grabbed the church universal? Let us begin by taking a look at the seed teachings from Jesus in Matthew chapter 13. We'll read uh, verses 1 through 9, and then that will be followed by verses um, 13, uh, I'm blanking out here, 18 through 23. Verses 1 through 9 first. Later that same day, Jesus left the house and sat beside the lake. A large crowd soon gathered around him, so he got into a boat. Then he sat there and taught as the people stood on the shore. He told many stories in the form of parables such as this one. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seeds. As he scattered them across his field, some seed fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate them. Other seeds fell on shallow soil with underlying rocks. The seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but the plants soon wilted under the hot sun, and since they didn't have deep roots, they dried up and died. Other seeds fell among the thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants. Still other seeds fell on fertile soil, and they produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even a hundred times as much as had been planted. Anyone with the ears to hear this should listen and understand. Now, let's jump to verse 18. Now, listen to the explanation of the parable about the farmer planting the seeds. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message about the kingdom and don't understand it. Then the evil one comes and snatches away the seed that was planted in their hearts. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they didn't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. The seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth, so no fruit is produced. The seed that fell on good soil represents those who truly hear and understand God's word and produce a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as has been planted. I have to admit that I grew up in farm country, so I know a few things about seeds and weeds. And I didn't do this as a job like my brothers did, but I do remember on my grandfather's farm, once or twice, walking the bean field. The soybeans would sprout up. This was before they had herbicides and pesticides. The, the soybeans would sprout up, and as they grew, the plants would grow with them, the, uh, the weeds would grow with them. In particular, my grandfather's farm, it was thistles. 
And so we would be sent out with hose to cut the roots of the thistles and to knock them down so that they wouldn't continue to interfere with the growth of the soybeans. The farmer is sowing some seed. What's interesting is they didn't have planters back then that, you know, measured it perfectly so that there was no wasted space. It was more like an extravagant experience of just throwing the seed to see where it would land and whether or not it would grow. In today's reading, Jesus tells us about this farmer who sows some seed. Some seed fell on the footpath, and the birds came and ate the seeds. Jesus says, this is the evil one who comes and snatches away the, mes the message that was sown into the hearts, that is sown into the path. The second type of soil that Jesus talks about is the seeds that fell on the rocky soil where there was no depth of soil. The seed represents here those who hear the message, but they don't have deep roots and they fall away because of problems or because of persecutions for believing in Jesus. Other seeds, this would be the third type of soil, fell among the thorns that choked out the tender plants, kind of like those thistles in the soybean. The seed represents those who hear God's word, but the word becomes crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth. So no fruit is produced. What's interesting here in this description by Jesus is that the problem is not that the seed hasn't been planted, it's been planted, it's taken root, it's growing, but it is being choked out. It's in good soil, but there's also some weeds there. The fourth soil that Jesus describes here is that some seed fell on the fertile soil. And in this soil, it produced a crop of 30-fold, some places 60-fold, and even some places 100-fold, 100 times as much as had been planted. Jesus says here that the seed on the good soil represents those who truly hear God's word and understand it and produce a harvest. Sometimes I think we look at this scripture in relationship to our own individual lives, and if we do that, it can be rather condemning, um, and it can be uplifting when we hear the good news in this message. But today I wanted to look at it in the context of the church. As we are planting seeds, how are we planting? And what kind of soils are we dealing with? Here in Arizona, we have this soil they call caliche, and it's very difficult to get things to grow here. But maybe it's not always the soils, but it's the interference with the soil that Jesus describes. Remember, in the weeds, it was the lure of wealth, and it was the worries, 
the anxieties about the problems of our day. In the shallow rocky ground, it was being worried about your life and also about the problems that you would encounter and for some even persecution for believing. What Jesus seems to be describing here are what Paul eventually calls strongholds. Now some of you may not be familiar with this terminology of strongholds and demons, so I wanted to share a little bit about this with you. Now, as you hear me introduce this section on spiritual strongholds and demons, some of you are probably wondering, Pastor Steve, have you gone nuts? Perhaps it was something I ate. Unfortunately, I haven't had enchiladas for nearly a month, so it couldn't be that. But let's take a look at strongholds and demons because that is what Jesus is talking about in this text. You might say we're going to jump into the deep end. And in doing that, I'm going to invite you to come with me and to tread water in the deep end as we take a look at spiritual strongholds. The stronghold term appears in the Bible at least 50 times. And it is often referred to as persecution for believing, problems, anxieties, worries, wealth. There are many other descriptions, but these are the ones we hear from Jesus. And stronghold literally means fortress. A fortress can be a good thing. If the fortress, if you're on the inside of the fortress and the fortress is protecting you from external uh, attacks, then a fortress is a good thing. But if you are on the outside of the fortress and the external attacks are coming at you, then it has a whole different meaning. What we're looking at here today is a term that we would call not just a fortress, but a stronghold. It means that something has become strong in its way. And when it's become strong in, a, in its way, um, it becomes difficult for us to break out of that. It might be a routine, it might be a habit, it might be um, an addiction, it, it could be a lot of different things. The evil one uses these strongholds to prevent us, the church, from pursuing our purposes. Last week we talked about, I mean, the primary purpose of the church was what? Go make disciples. Go make disciples of all nations. We talked about it in the context of worship. We talked about it in the context of teaching. And we talked about it in the context of the Holy Spirit. So, when we talk about these strongholds, they are what the evil one uses to prevent us, the church, from pursuing our purposes. Let me share a couple of stories from the book of Acts in the early church that may help to illustrate this. 
You could say that in Acts chapter 2, before Pentecost, the disciples were waiting. And they were still mired in unbelief. That kind of worldview had control over them. You know, when, when Jesus appeared to them in the resurrection stories, they were surprised, they were excited, they were filled with joy, and yet it says some didn't believe. When, that was Jesus' resurrection, when he ascended into heaven, they all gathered at the mountain before his ascension and they worshipped him, but some doubted. So the, the stronghold that they were dealing with was unbelief. That unbelief had a control over them. But what happened in the story of the Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon them was that the church was changed and transformed in, in amazing ways. And no longer were these disciples, these apostles, no longer were they filled with unbelief. They were now filled with faith and trust. And so they went to the temple. Peter and John in Acts 3 then go to the temple to pray, to offer their worship to God. And on the way in, the lame man <coughs> cries out for some money. And they don't have any money, so they give him what they have. They heal him in the name of Jesus Christ. They no longer are controlled by the stronghold of unbelief. They help him to get up. They walk him into the temple, and he begins to worship and to praise God with them. Now that is a breakthrough. That is a huge breakthrough. And what we see next then, after this power of control has rested over them, when, they're bro when they break through from that control and they experience this new life of faith, what happens next is that they experience persecution. They are arrested and they are to appear before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, the last time that these apostles probably saw the Sanhedrin was on Good Friday when they condemned Jesus to death. So they probably weren't too excited about going back in front of the Sanhedrin, but now they are Pentecost apostles. They are filled with grace and faith and joy even in the midst of persecution. That is a stronghold that gets broken open. There's another one that I'll share with you from Acts chapter 16. And in this particular story, uh, Paul and Silas are um, they're on, they're on Paul's second missionary journey. And one of the things that Paul wants to do, he wants to visit all the churches that he started in Asia on his first missionary journey. The only problem is as they try to go to these different places, the Holy Spirit prevents them from being able to, to go there. And so they go to these cities and they can't go to where they want to be with the churches that they had started. And so Paul ends up in, um, in a state of, of meditation, asking God what's going on. And so after several nights of prayer, Paul has a vision. And in this vision, there's a man from Macedonia who is waving Paul 
to Macedonia, which we would know today as Greece. And he's saying, come, we need your help. Come here to help. And so Paul and Silas make their way to Macedonia. A little bit different than the plan that they had for their journey. But if God is calling them there, they're going to go there. This is where they immediately meet Lydia, who becomes a believer in Philippi. And um, one of the things that is unique here in this particular story is that as she becomes a believer, she also becomes a supporter of the early church financially. While they're in this region, they are going around sharing the gospel, the good news with people, and there is a slave girl who is following them, and she keeps shouting out, um, these men are speaking about the Most High God, and she just keeps telling people behind them that they're talking about the Savior. And they hear this and um, realize that she is possessed by a demon. She is a young girl, it says a slave girl, and she is thus owned by some men who are becoming very wealthy off of her because they use her as a fortune teller. So they've set up a shop and she can tell fortunes and people pay big money to come and get their fortunes told. Boy, you, you wonder if something like this would ever happen today, don't you? And, and so as they're coming to get their fortunes told, um, this, this group of men are making lots of money. It's called labor trafficking today, this young girl. And so finally, this is all really irritating Paul, and so he turns around one day and he commands this demon to come out of her. And the demon comes out, and she stops prophesying, <laughs> and she stops fortune-telling. She is now just a little girl, and she has been healed from this demon. And she has been released from this captivity of labor trafficking. Meanwhile, these men are really angry and upset with Paul because they have just, he, uh, Paul has just destroyed their financial um, revenue source in this girl. And so they are out to attack him. They gather a mob together. They go and they strip Paul and Silas. They beat them. They have them arrested. And Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. So what we see is that what had control of this girl was a stronghold that was a demon. And Paul and Silas had a breakthrough moment with her and released the demon from her. And the minute they had this breakthrough, what are they encountering? Like in Acts chapter 4, they're encountering persecution. Now they're being arrested not by the religious leaders, now they're being arrested by the Roman leaders of this community, Philippi. These stories begin with control, which they then eventually experience breakthrough. Like I said, prior to the breakthrough of Pentecost, the disciples were controlled by their confusion and their disbelief. Prior to returning to all the churches Paul had started in Asia, he was held back from returning to them. He was controlled by the resistance to his message. But the message still came through for the little slave girl. 
He didn't know where he was supposed to go. It was a stronghold that prevented him from returning to Asia. But the breakthrough was God sent a vision for him to find a man in Macedonia that was open to supporting their ministries there. So however the apostles experienced this control, they always worked for breakthrough. And when they experienced breakthrough, they also experienced persecution. But in the midst of persecution, they persevered. And they continued, they continued to be the church. So the question for us this morning, I think, is what are the strongholds that hold us back from living out our purpose as the church? Our big vision statement on the wall, the sculpture out in front, making Jesus Christ the heart of every home. What prevents us, what stops us from being able to do that? While there are lots of descriptions of strongholds, Jesus tells us the lure of wealth is one. And so I would ask, is that one for us? Do we exhibit poverty? I don't think so. But perhaps we exhibit a poverty of spirit, a spiritual poverty. That would be a stronghold. Today we also deal with addictions. We have hosted a AA group here for years, for over two decades. And the group grows. It doesn't get smaller, which is good. I'm so grateful that people are finding healing. But what it also tells me is that addiction continues to be a stronghold in our, in our cultural uh, worldview here in North Scottsdale. And what about rationalism? Rationalism that leads to unbelief. Could that be a stronghold for us, for our community of faith? Do we have doubts that creep in for us about God and about God's power and God's authority? Alan Hirsch, a theologian, on, an expert on this concept of the scattered church, he believes that consumerism is a stronghold for American churches today. And this is what he combines into the stronghold of consumerism. He describes this as our need for safety, for security, for comfort, and convenience. Are there strongholds that have a hold of us as a church? That's the question I want you to wrestle with. And I'll tell you that I've been wrestling with this question. And I believe that God has been sharing with me some vision of a stronghold that certainly has a hold of our nation, but may also have a hold of us as a church, as the body of Christ. And this is what I have heard from God. God is filled with grief over our lack of compassion for one another. Now, I don't mean to say that we're not compassionate. We are compassionate people. We are very compassionate people. 
until we find ourselves dealing with people who have a different political ideology than we do. Then it seems like the compassion gets thrown out the door. I'm not saying that Jesus didn't throw down the gauntlet. He certainly challenged lots of people. He challenged religious leaders. He challenged the wealthy. He challenged the demons and Satan. And he challenged those with power. And he even challenged his disciples. But while he challenged his disciples, he always did it with love for them. It was always out of love and not out of righteous anger or pride. And when we challenge one another's politics without any love, without any concern for the other, we end up exposing our pride. Now, I wish this was my insight. I'm not that smart. I'm not that intuitive. I'm not that... Um, th this is God speaking, challenging all of us. Challenging me, challenging you. While he challenged his disciples, he did challenge a lot of people, and he challenged even his disciples. But when he challenged his disciples, he did it with love. As I've said before, this is not a Republican congregation, and this is not a Democrat congregation. This is God's congregation. This is the place where the Holy Spirit resides because of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. When hubris, when pride, enters into our churches, it tears at the very fabric of our churches. It tears at the relationships. And we end up joining arms with the evil one as we tear down and destroy the body of Christ. And how do we do this? <laughs> One of the most prominent ways that I have seen this in this particular period of time for us as a church and as a nation is with social media. In social media, we can so easily end up joining forces with the evil one because what he wants is to tear us down. What he wants to do is to destroy the body of Christ, to destroy the relationships that we have. When I look at you, I may know, I, you know, you have, you have blessed me. You have blessed me with your trust. Because when I look at you, for many of you, I know which party you belong to. I tend to be an apolitical person, but I'm, I love you. I don't love you because of your political ideology. I love you because Christ loves you, and that's the kind of love that I think we're called to look at each other with, a love that goes deep. Our political arena today has become a huge spiritual stronghold, and Satan is using it to try to, try to destroy us. And if there's anyone who needs to speak out against this, 
I believe it's the church. And I speak this with great love for all of you. We can be better. I'm not saying we can do better. I'm saying we can be better to one another. We can be Christ to one another. So there may be other spiritual strongholds, but that's the one that God wanted me to speak to you about today. And I'm not going to speak about this stuff real often because you get enough of it through the news. But what I do know is that we do have strongholds that prevent us from being who God has called us to be. And we do have examples of how the early church responded that can help to inform us, not just in our knowledge about how to respond, but in our actions of how to respond. In Acts 4, when Peter and John are arrested and then they appear before the Sanhedrin, I don't know if you remember what the Sanhedrin decides, but they decide that their punishment is that they are to go, they are to be released, but they are never to speak in the name of Jesus Christ again. And Peter kind of, you can imagine him laughing like, okay, yeah, we'll never, we'll never speak of his name again, right? We can't stop speaking of his name. And so what happened next? Peter and John went back to the other believers and they all met together and they prayed. They prayed for courage. So let's come Wednesday night and pray for courage. What else did they do? In Acts chapter 16, when they're imprisoned by the Roman civil leaders, in prison, they pray and they sing hymns. Now, unfortunately, we can't sing yet, but we can think hymns, we can hum hymns, and we can sing hymns in our homes, we can sing hymns in our cars, but let's pray and sing hymns like these believers did in Acts 16. Paul says that we also have spiritual weapons. In um, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, um, let me read verses 3 through 5. Paul says, We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and, dis and to destroy um, uh, false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture the rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. So what Paul is saying here is that we have mighty weapons, spiritual weapons from God. Well, what would be those weapons? Ephesians 6, Paul um, delineates those weapons in uh, verses, um, chapter 6, verses 13 through 17. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you'll be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. 
for shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so you may be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet. And then here's the last and the most important one. And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Truth. God's righteousness. Not our righteousness. God's righteousness. Peace from the good news. Faith. Salvation. The sword of the Spirit, the word of God. And then in 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Peter describes for us, we didn't look at 2 Peter, we just went through 1 Peter this summer. So this is in 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. This is what Peter writes. By his, by God's divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We've received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and to escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. So the spiritual weapons that we have are things like truth and righteousness, peace and faith, salvation, the word of God, the promises of God. These are tools for us, the church, to use. And we are also given a, an opportunity or a way to spiritually respond to the power of Satan. And the, um, the amazing thing is that the first most important step that we have to respond to Satan and his power is repentance. Repentance meaning to turn away from the stronghold that has trapped us, that has captured our attention, to turn away from that stronghold and to turn back to God. It continues with belief, making a plan to live a new life, turning away from the stronghold back to God and living a new life. Paul said this calls for perseverance in prayer and in Scripture. As we continue to deal with this pandemic, let me just reiterate, God has not caused this virus. God has not created it and sent it to us. But God is asking us as the church, how will we respond? How will we respond? We can use this time to fight with one another, to disagree with one another, or we can use this time to be little Christ, to be servants to one another. We can use this time to be blind to the strongholds around us, or we can begin to acknowledge them and to become the church and to be the church in the world. Will you pray with me as we seek to be the church, whether in temple or whether in houses?
whether gathered together or whether scattered. Let us pray. Most holy and gracious God, we thank you for your promises and we thank you for your word. Draw us back to that word. Draw us back to a time of prayer. May we dedicate a portion of each day to be reunited with you, the one who loves us, the one who has redeemed us, the one who has sanctified us and made us holy, the one who calls us forth to be the church. Amen.